Thank you. God bless you. And good morning. How is everyone? So, you know, every now and then in church, you just kind of ask a general question like, so, is anybody celebrating a birthday today? Let's see. Oh, yes, I see there's one. So, yes, Mindy's celebrating a birthday today, and of course, a husband should never announce the age of his wife. That would be quite impolite. Um, however, she was born two weeks after Disneyland opened, and so <laughs> if you know anything about Disneyland, as most everybody does, you can kind of figure it out. So, she, she's, <laughs> she's a Disneyland baby. <laughs> Let us pray and ask God to deliver his word to us in a, in a powerful and meaningful way today, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we look to you because we are in such need of you as we come to your word. Now, your word without the power of the Spirit is nothing but words on paper, and it will do nothing for us unless you cause something mysterious and spiritual and powerful to happen. Right. And so we would ask that just now. Yes. Well, we're looking at verses today which are not unfamiliar to probably most of us. And we have conclusions we've already reached about what the meaning or the application is. And so instead of going to preconceived conclusions, we want to pause and we want to look to you. Yes. Say, Lord, what would be your word for us at Grace Church today from this passage? Please speak, please speak clearly. We, yes. we are slow to learn. We don't listen well. Lord, please speak clearly to us. Get through the hard hearts. Get through the stubbornness, get through the layers that are built up that seem to work as resistance against you, and instead deliver to us today what your word would be. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder if I were to ask you what your answer would be, what, what do you think history's greatest initiatives have been? People thinking it through would think back to the ancient Egyptians and imagine the building of those gigantic pyramids. Whose idea was that? And how did they pull that off? Down through the years, we still scratch our heads in amazement. That was a pretty impressive initiative. How about the building of the Great Wall of China? It's astounding to see it, to walk it to imagine how it could have been put together, and it stands age after age as a testimony to those who had the initiative to think it through and do it. What about the initiative to put a man on the moon and bring him home? I, I, I always try to remember that they were very clear when they said, we're sending a man to the moon and we're going to bring him home. So that's... That's, that was an important part of it. In 1969, the United States of America 
put a man on the moon. That was an amazing initiative. Who, who thought of that? Who started? Who, who did it? How do you do something like that? Uh, history has been filled with some rather glorious, amazing initiatives. And I want to share with you today, and my own opinion is that the most amazing and most glorious and most wonderful initiative of all was announced when Jesus of Nazareth one day stood up and said, I will build my church. I want you to notice that he did not say, I will establish my religion. It was not the ambition of Jesus to compete with the great temples of that day to build a larger temple or more impressive temples. And sometimes when I see the cathedrals that have been established around the world today, supposedly, I guess, in the name of Christ, I really wonder whether that was what Jesus' ambition was. Because when he said, I will build my church, although he was using the word build, which sounds like construction, he was talking about assembling people. Yes. A church is a congregation. Yes. A church is a family of believers. A church is all about people. Jesus said, I will grow my family of believers. I will assemble my congregation. I will build my church. And so he was meaning the leaders and the followers. He was meaning those who are strong in the faith and those who are weak in the faith. He was meaning those who have all the answers and those who not so much have all the answers. He was meaning those who would study the Bible from cover to cover thoroughly and memorize it and try their best to apply it, and the others who just kind of do their best to believe and follow along. It was the ambition of Jesus. It was the vision of Jesus. It was the initiative of Jesus to assemble this massive worldwide congregation. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I will build my church. So, we're going to ask a question this morning. How does Jesus build his church? Doesn't use mortar, doesn't use bricks, doesn't use stucco. His church doesn't have chimneys. How does he build his church? And there are more than one way, there's more than one way to approach that question, but the way that I want to approach the question is to impress upon you that when Jesus builds his church, he uses people. And we're going to go to a passage in the book of Ephesians today, a classic and wonderful passage that talks about Christ building His church. And we're going to see from the beginning of that passage to the end of that passage that it's all about the people that He uses. He's building His church. He's building His church by using leaders and followers and men and women and the young and the old and those with experience and those without experience and those who have all the answers and those who don't. Jesus is building his church. So let's take a look at this passage. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. I'd like to read through it first in the English Standard Version, and I'm actually going to use another version after that. But let's begin with this one where it says in the ESV that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. There's our, there's our idea right there, the building up of the body of Christ. Until, verse 13, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waters and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Whew, that is a mouthful. And I want to tell you something about this passage. And it, it has led to no few gray hairs among scholars who have studied it down through the years. Now, there really is no great mystery about what the apostle is saying. The overall idea we get. It's not that difficult to get the overall idea, but you know what? There's lots of prepositions in that passage. It's a long, run-on sentence with prepositional phrases that run all over the place. And scholars are just not always sure how does this prepositional phrase relate to that prepositional phrase? Are these things intended to be in sequence? That is, does this first happen and then that happens and then after that, that happens? Or are they set out in parallel? There is some question about the translation of some of the words and some of the verbs. And so, I've chosen to use another translation. I don't always study from this translation but I read this passage through in a number of other translations to see if I could find one that breaks down those long sentences into some shorter sentences to make it, I think, a little easier to understand. And so I've chosen the New Living Translation. This is how that reads in the NLT. Same passage. Now, these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then, we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of His body, the church, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. That's just one of my favorite phrases from this passage. He, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, 
it helps the other parts grow. So that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So here's the thing that I want to impress upon you today. Very, very simply. I think you could remember this very easily. I think it flows right out of the passage. Overall, the meaning of the passage, even if we don't catch all of the, the nuances of the prepositional phrases, is that Jesus is building his church and he's using people. That's the idea of the passage. The passage may say much more than that. But it says Jesus is building his church and he is using people. You know who he's using? He uses the big guns, which is what I mean today to say by those who are obviously famous, the Dietrich Bonhoeffers of history, and the apostles and prophets who established a church from the beginning. He uses the big guns. But I mean to impress upon you that he uses all of us. I hope very much to impress upon you today that you are extremely important to Grace Church. I really intend for you to go home today and and say to yourself, you know what, I feel like Grace Church is a place where I'm needed. I feel like I could have a ministry there, or, or I do have a ministry there, and I feel like my ministry there makes a difference. And even though that I'm not one of the elders of the church, but I feel like the things that I'm doing in Grace Church matter. And I also would hope for this. It could be some of you who are here today who are not what we would call plugged in yet with Grace Church. And maybe the concept of having a ministry is still foreign to you. You don't know what that would look like for you. You don't know where you would best fit in the body. And my hope is, even if you don't feel that you identify a spiritual gift or a specific place in Grace Church, I dearly hope that when you go home today, you will say, you know what, I, I, I have a motivation to look for a place at Grace Church. I, I want to find where I fit in because I see dozens and dozens of many other wonderful people and they're doing this, that, and the other. I'm not plugged in yet and I would like to be. And then the next two Sundays, uh, Tab is going to take this and he's going to apply it very specifically, very specifically, as you do so well, to help us to understand what the word means to me and what I should do about the word today and tomorrow. So that's kind of the overall direction that we want to go. So two parts of this I want to spend time with. <clears throat> One is that when Jesus builds the church, he's using the big guns. He's using the, the famous people, those who are thought by some to be the more important people, uh, those who are household names, those who go all the way back to the beginning, who established the church, and those who have done such a wonderful job carrying it on all down through these years. So I'm thinking, for example, about the apostles and prophets. That's where he starts in verse 11. These are the gifts of Christ to the church, the apostles and the prophets. Jesus had a method. I hope we understand the Lord's method. You know, in some ways, Jesus was wonderfully simple. In some ways, wonderfully simple. He had a method. He made disciples. That was his method. He made disciples. He went around and he taught. Sometimes he taught large groups. The reason he taught large groups is because he was looking for people in those groups who would believe the words that he was speaking and would follow him. 
that they might be raised up as disciples. In some places, he went around and he healed people. He did miraculous works. But the reason that he did with this was to confirm the word that he was sharing, and he was constantly on the lookout for the men and women in the congregations or in the assemblies that he was speaking to, to see who among them might be my followers, who will be my disciples. And it's rather remarkable, I think, if you take a little survey of church history down through the years and see what Christianity has become, and ask, whatever happened to just making disciples? Oh, Christianity has become an organization and many organizations, and we have these gigantic cathedrals all over the place. I just got a, I just got a postcard from my niece. Um, first time in her life she's ever left the country, she went to Ukraine and sent a postcard from Kiev. And it's a picture of a beautiful, a beautiful bell tower on top of a church. She said there are churches everywhere in Ukraine. What she means by that is there are buildings that we call churches. Sadly, there's nobody in them. So that's not really what the ambition of our Lord was. He went around raising up disciples, calling people to follow him. And then his ambition was that they were going to raise up disciples to call people to follow them. And that's who the apostles were. So among those first followers, Jesus named 12, who would be apostles, that means sent ones, and he sent them out. He said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. It's not that complicated. Father has sent me, I am sending you. Father sent me to do certain things, like raise up disciples, and he empowered them with authority. He said, I'm sending you out with authority to also raise up disciples, and those disciples you raise up should raise up other disciples, and those disciples should raise up other disciples. That's who the apostles are. So it was, it was wonderful, though, in the first century that God gifted the apostles with an, a sense of inspiration, with, with the ability to write down what we call the New Testament, so we have a written record of what Jesus said and did, and how this applies to the churches. So this was kind of like the establishment of the church. It's kind of how the church, that was kind of the foundation of the church. Prophets went along with that, and the prophets were likely people in the church in that age who were inspired by the Spirit to speak the Word of God. Some of them might not have themselves been directly disciples of Jesus, but they were empowered by the Spirit in local congregations to speak God's Word. And I always think, I don't know if it's just me, but I always think that when I see the coupling of apostles and prophets, I think this is the third time in the book of Ephesians where it happens. I always have a tendency to remember back to those prophets who came before the time of Christ. And I'm thinking about how this summer Tab and Joshua took some time to take us to the teaching of Zechariah and how important that was. When you read what we sometimes call the minor prophets or, or any of the prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, any of the prophets in the Old Testament, sometimes you forget you're in the Old Testament because it sounds so much like it's New Testament. And I always think that Jesus, who, is, who identified himself very directly with the, with the prophets who came before him and identified the apostles with those prophets who came before him, and I always think that there was a shout out there to the Zechariahs and Isaiahs and Jeremiahs who established the foundation and those in the first century who were continuing to build on that. So we have apostles and prophets. Most of them are household names. We know who they are. 
What's next on the list of big guns? Well, what's next on that list is evangelists. So listen to this. The Christ for Greater Los Angeles Committee scheduled three weeks of revival meetings in 1949. I think that is such a remarkable sentence, it bears repeating. Listen to this again. The Christ for the Greater Los Angeles Committee, the what? (laughs) Scheduled three weeks of revival meetings? Who does that? In 1949, well, that's something you don't really do anymore. They had this idea. They invited as the speaker a young evangelist named Billy Graham. I think he was in his young, early 30s at that time. And the meetings were held in a tent that was set up in a parking lot and erected in such a way that it would hold 6,000 people. So, if we formed together the Christ for Greater La Mesa committee and scheduled three weeks of meetings and found a parking lot somewhere, would we have the faith to put up a tent that would hold 6,000 people? I don't know, but they did. And the results were amazing. The results were historic. Because immediately they had to expand that 6,000-seat tent to a 9,000-seat tent They extended the time from three weeks to eight weeks, and it is said that over an eight-week period of time, Billy Graham preached to 350,000 people. It is said that there were 3,000 conversions among them. So what is an evangelist? Well, an evangelist is somebody who has this spirit-enabled ability to speak the gospel in such a convincing fashion that those who are outside of Christ are led to respond to the gospel invitation. And so in some ways, an evangelist is not different from the rest of us because all of us are called upon to live out the gospel in our daily lives. All of us are called to, to know the gospel well enough to put the the, the, the information of the gospel or the ideas of the gospel into daily conversations, to live it out, to speak to other people about it. All of us should know the gospel well enough that we can sit down with a co-worker, a family member, a neighbor, and, and share the gospel with them. But most of us don't have the experience of seeing lots of people who, when they hear the gospel, immediately respond. But some people do. That's the spiritual gift of evangelism. It would it be a stretch if we were to ask, do you think that there are those in Grace Church who have the spiritual gift of evangelism? Would it be a stretch to say that there might be some who are? Um, and I ask that question in order to help us start to think. Because what I'm saying today is that everybody fits in in a special way at Grace Church. There might be some men or women here who have a spiritual gift of evangelism. Maybe it needs to be fostered. Maybe it needs to be nurtured. And not every evangelist is famous. And even though I used the example of Billy Graham, not every evangelist is famous. There are many people who have just been blessed by the Lord to lead several people or or dozens of people in their lifetime to a saving knowledge of Christ because they do have that spiritual gift. I wonder if you have that spiritual gift. If that's not your spiritual gift, I wonder what your spiritual gift is. And I hope you're thinking that way. 
And I hope you're wondering, what would be my spiritual gift and how would that be applied in this church? Well, still on the list of the big guns that God uses, we're going to add next the pastors and teachers. And that's translated two different ways. There are some who think that it's talking about one office, a pastor teacher or a shepherd teacher. And there are those who think, well, it's meaning to speak about pastors and it's meaning to speak about teachers. And I tend to think the latter way because there are some people within Christendom, and there always have been, who articulate the faith so wonderfully and beautifully that they excel beyond just the congregations that they serve. And their books are sold popularly, and when they speak at conferences, we all go and we listen carefully, and a lot of times we hear things we already know, but they just put it together in such a way that we learn so much. It does seem that God raises up some who are gifted teachers and raises up some who are gifted pastors, and their congregation is no longer just those people who assemble together in a building on a Sunday morning that they preach to, but their preaching gets out on podcasts, and, and again, they are, in a sense, pastoring the, the larger church, the Dietrich Bonhoeffers of history, uh, the Martin Luthers of history. This may be my only opportunity before October 31st, 2017, uh, to say, as I'm sure we will not forget, that this year is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, which historians be believe uh, started on October 31st, 1517. So we might hear more about Martin Luther between now and then. Uh, the, the, these, are, these are wonderful luminaries who have just contributed so much to us. But I do not mean to say that the pastors and teachers whose names are not household names are not important. Rather, I mean to say the opposite. And I mean to say thanks to Tab and to Joshua, to Steve, Marshall, Tim, the pastors and elders of this church, whose ministry is so vital for this congregation. I just wonder how many pastors are there in the worldwide church? How many could there be? Uh, some people estimate that there are as many as 2 billion Christians in the world today. How many millions of pastors would that be? I absolutely believe this, that the collective impact of the Tabs, the Joshuas, and I think it's Pastor Greg, is it, who's here today? The, 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 the pastor, the collective impact far exceeds, far outweighs the impact of those luminaries whose names are household names, whose books we read, and who are so articulate that when they speak, thousands of people uh, come and, and, and listen. I just really believe that God uses the pastors and, and the teachers in such a profound and wonderful way. So that's what I mean, though, by the gig, big guns. Now I want to transition into the second part of this now and talk about how it is that God uses the rest of us. And I'm going to read through these verses I'm going to discipline myself not to comment on every, on every verse because these are all, all important. I've pretty much just been talking about verse 11 thus far. And then verse 12, 12 says their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So far, it sounds like all we really need 
are apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. So far, it sounds like that's how Jesus does the work, but we read on. Verse 14, then we'll be no longer immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, verse 15 says, we will speak the truth in love. It almost appears that the Apostle Paul invents a word here because he takes the word truth and he turns it into a verb. So what are we, what are we doing instead? Instead, we're truthing. What's that? Well, we're speaking the truth in love. So instead, speaking the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on verse 16. Because again, so far it doesn't sound like I'm in this passage anywhere. But listen to verse 16. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. I need to spend just a, a couple of minutes on, on that phrase. Christ makes the whole body fit together perfectly. We're not talking about just the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers anymore, are we? He says the whole body. So he makes... This thing keeps falling off, sorry. Um, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly, which means that Jesus is the sovereign head over the church. Over the worldwide church, yes, but over each local congregation as well. And we have to understand that he puts this body together and it is made up of parts very diverse and very different from each other for his own special purposes. Now, I'd like to personalize this just for a moment. I think this will help you to see how this applies to you if I just speak about it from my own point of view. So, many of you know that I am a Presbyterian minister. Actually, next year, I will have been ordained in the Presbyterian Church for 30 years. If Christ puts the whole body together perfectly, and if not everybody is a Presbyterian, what am I left to conclude? Apparently, not everybody is supposed to be a Presbyterian. I can't even believe I'm saying that. You know, and the truth is, sadly, this is true. I have met Presbyterians who do think that Christ is the head of the Presbyterian church and that nobody else counts. Honestly, I have. But it appears from what the Word says that Christ puts the whole body together perfectly and that he's the head of it. Well, what do, what do Presbyterians believe? Well, we, we have this, this great appreciation for a document called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was written 450 years ago. It's a wonderful doctrinal statement. Some people make the mistake of thinking that we add it to the Bible, and we don't. We understand it's not inerrant. It's not infallible. It, in fact, has changed many times down through the years. It has been edited many times, but it's about 35 chapters in length, and it contains, as we call it, the system of doctrine taught in Holy Scripture. If you go to a Presbyterian church, they're always talking about the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
But I have noticed that other churches don't emphasize the Westminster Confession of Faith the same way the Presbyterian Church does. And I realize that there are some people who, when they read the Westminster Confession of Faith, find it perfectly boring and they can't even get through it. I can't believe I'm saying these things. (laughs) And evidently, that's the way it's supposed to be. Because Christ makes the whole body fit together perfectly. What's the application for Grace Church? You're in a congregation with a lot of people who are different from you. There are people in our church who would be classified as being maybe stiff and legalistic. You can throw that label at me if you want to. That probably fits. I don't mean to be. Probably sometimes I come off as stiff and legalistic. There are some people in our church who are looser. Perhaps you would even classify them as being worldly. They're part of our church. They're an important part of our church. There's some people in our church who have a very strong connection to the Holy Spirit through prayer, so strong that when they are praying, they really sense. They hear from the Holy Spirit, and He directs them as to where they are to go and what they are to do. And there are other people in our church who would say, you know, I get that kind of direction from the Lord, but I but I seem to get that direction from the Lord through the study of His Word and the application of it to my life. There are people in our church that have different theological ideas. There are people in our, in our church who have different political ideas. Tab has done a wonderful job of saying, you know what, we don't announce a certain political party and say if you're not a part of that political party, you don't fit in here, because it's not true. Well, what are we to do then as we assemble together with people who have different ideas about how to walk with the Lord, or who have different personalities, or have different political ideas, what are we to do? The temptation is to form cliques. In every church, there's a temptation to form cliques. You know, we're, we're, the, we're the conservative clique, and, and, and they're the liberal clique. You know? and, and I don't talk to people from the conservative clique because I'm, I'm in the liberal clique. There's always that temptation in churches. What if instead we said Christ is the head of this body and he makes this body fit together perfectly? And so maybe I go to a home group and I listen to others who have different points of view and I learn from others and I ask them to pray for me and I pray for them. And maybe I learn, and maybe I grow, and then maybe I'm not as stiff and legalistic as I was before because I'm, 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 I'm learning from other people who have a better appreciation for the way the body of Christ works. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. The phrase that comes after that, too, get back there. Oh, my bookmark fell out. Um... Do you have the verse 16 on the slide back there? Could you pop it up there? Yeah, let's just leave that up there for a few minutes, if you would. The next phrase that comes out of that, it says, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly, and as each part does its own special work. So what I want to emphasize here is that you have your own special work to do. 
We, we emphasize often how unique people are, but this is a case where the uniqueness of every human being helps us to understand how it is that in a body that's so complex, that has so many diverse parts, that each part has to have its own function in order to really work best. Everybody is completely unique. So people watching is kind of a pastime for me. So I'm willing to go along to the mall, and while my wife and daughter are doing some shopping, I like to find a bench and just sit on it and watch people go by. It's thoroughly fascinating, and I don't spend money doing it. <laughs> it's a wonderful idea. You know, just look at people physically. You never see two people who look alike, nothing alike. Look at people as they walk by and notice how hair is different on everyone. The thickness or the thinness of the, le- the, the hair, the color of the hair. I realize some people use hair color from a bottle. I would maintain that even if two people use the same bottle of hair color, it would come out slightly differently. In one person's head of hair, the, the hair seems to just naturally fall back in other people, it seems to naturally fall forward. Some, in some people, they're, they're heads of hair that naturally fall into a part. For other people, they don't. Some people have more hair. Some people have less hair. I don't know if anybody here is in the hairdressing business. I would be interested to hear from you afterwards if you are. I think you would say to me that no two heads of hair on this planet are the same. I bet you would say that. And if you sit in a mall and watch people go back and forth for an hour, I think you would reach that conclusion. And that can be said about every distinction about the human being. And isn't it amazing? In some ways, we're all alike. We all have two eyes, one nose, two hands, ten toes, ten fingers, one heart, one set of shoulders. It seems like everybody would look alike and nobody looks alike. So God has this wonderful variety that he uses when he puts people together. This is what I believe. That applies spiritually as well. I believe that you could have the same spiritual gift as the person sitting beside you or in front of you or behind you, and even you could have the same personality type, but that that spiritual gift would be applied differently or it would manifest differently in you than it does in the other person. I truly believe that it would. And so when we say that each part has its own special work, we're not talking about nine or ten or eleven jobs that need to be done. We're talking about hundreds and thousands. And you have a unique role to play in this church. And when, then, each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow. So that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So Christ is building his church, he's using people, and he's not just using the Apostle Paul and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's using all of us. And he has this idea about how this body is growing and how this body will grow. What does it look like when we come on Sunday mornings at Grace Church? Well, one person is the friendly face that you see when you get out of your car and you get the program for the day. Somebody else is inside plugging these wires in and later on unplugging all the wires. Somebody else is putting coffee and bread out back there. Somebody else is playing musical instruments. Somebody else is singing 
somebody else is ministering with the children. All of these different things are being done. And even beyond that, we're all adding our voices when we sing congregationally. And even beyond that, we are all adding our amens when we are praying congregationally. I'm not just speaking about saying, uh, about doing an, an, an audible prayer where everybody recites it together because there's nothing wrong with doing that. But, like for example, when today, when Tab was praying, your amen was needed for that prayer. I think there would be a tendency for people in, in churches to not appreciate the place of congregational praying. And some churches don't do congregational praying. Do you know why? Because it's dead. It's, it's dead space. You know, and, they, and they want a certain, they want a certain like, tempo level from beginning to end. And if you do something like, like have congregational praying, it's, it's a downer. But it's wonderful to do that. It's biblical to do that. Because it is not the time where you or I are supposed to be pulling out our phones and say, well... Apparently, Tab is doing all the praying, so let's see what my text messages are. But you need to add your amen to the prayers that are being offered. And I don't think anybody's ever thought about this before, but I do think it is true. If I'm right or not, I'm not sure. When you get up on a Sunday morning and you kind of consider whether or not I'm going to church today, I really think it's a good idea to say I need to be there to add my voice to the voices of those who are giving glory to Jesus Christ. I need to be there because I need to say amen when one of the pastors gets up and prays for those things that are going on in our congregation. My amen is necessary. My prayer to be added to the mix is necessary. And I'm just talking about things that happen on Sunday mornings. What about the things that happen uh, in between Sunday mornings? What a wonderful ministry it is if you take time to pick up a phone and call somebody, maybe you haven't seen them, or you know that there's a need, and you say, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? How about participating in a home group? And Tab is going to be talking a lot about participating in a home group. Not from the perspective of what can I get out of it, I do get a lot out of, out of home group. But from the perspective of saying, is there a way I can do my own special work in the home group in order to build up the body of Christ? I'm encouraging you to think as creatively about all of these things as possible. And I will even add one more illustration. I'm just about done. I'll just add one more illustration. And that's an illustration of how sometimes the ministries that we find that God leads us into are ministries that are done outside of, not, on, not only outside the walls of the church, but even sometimes outside the, the, the context of the local congregation. So having been a pastor of, of different churches down through the years, from time to time I get a call from somebody who says, well, so-and-so passed away and you have been their pastor, would you do the funeral service for them? So I go and do that and, and uh, it's a joyful time really to reconnect with the family. Not long ago, I was doing a service, and when I was talking to the family, I learned an amazing thing about the person who had passed away. This is somebody I had known probably for more than 30 years. And her husband was talking to me, and he said, well, did you know that she taught a Bible class at one of the convalescent homes in San Diego? 
eh, you know, I was writing it down in my notes. Oh, okay, that's good. She taught a Bible class in one of the convalescent homes. Well, no, I didn't really know that. He says, she taught it for 45 years every Friday. I said, I didn't know this. He said, she didn't want anybody to know. It was, it was, like, it was like a ministry that, that God led her into, and she didn't go around talking about it. She was involved in the church, and she did things. She had other ministries in the church. Just encouraging you to think creatively. Because this is the way that God builds the church. What's the result of all this? Growth. That's the result of all this. And what is happening is that Jesus is building his church, he's growing his church, and he's using people like you and me in the process. And we'll just go to one closing illustration here. Ralph Winter um, is a name that might not be familiar to you. Ralph Winter could be called one of the most influential persons in global missions in the 20th century. The 20th century was an amazing century for global missions. Here was one of the persons who was one of the key thinkers in the area. By the way, when we speak of unreached people groups today, we have Ralph Winter to thank. And up until about the mid-1940s, the, the thought pretty much was that the, the, that the mission's job had been accomplished because there were churches in every political country. Uh, and then Ralph Winter came along and he said, you know, when it says in Scripture that all of the families of the earth shall be blessed, he's not just talking about political nations. He's talking about groups of people. And he opened up our minds to see what, what we in this church and many churches see now as the reality of the world that there are still many unreached people groups. And uh, Ralph Winter was one who, who got us thinking that way. And Winter... Was, was recorded as saying this. He says, I would like to know why all the pessimism? Why is every hope expressed, denounced as triumphalism? Why? Why? In the, in the last 20 centuries, the meek have quietly been inheriting the earth. Twelve disciples have expanded to the place where one-third of the world's population claims to follow the same Lord. And the really vital core has been expanding at an even more rapid rate during this whole century. Why would it stop now? And let's just close and give thanks to God for the growth of the church and pray that it continues through your ministry and through mine all of us. Lord Jesus Christ, you are building your church. We give you glory for that. You are the head of the church. And we thank you today that you have chosen to use people in this wonderful endeavor. Not just the great saints of old whose books we still read, and not just those who were used by the Holy Spirit to establish the writings of the New Testament, the sacred word of God, not just them. But you're using us who are believers in Christ today. And I pray for those who may feel like they don't know where they fit in, that you would give clarity and give to each one of us a sense of an understanding and a sense of direction. And God, we pray for Grace Church, that your will for the growth of this church as we expand into the lives of other people who don't know you would be fulfilled completely. Grow your church, we pray, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.